0: welcome to episode 17 of regulate tech with me Nicholas beard lumlad and with me richard allen so richard today we're going to talk about acronyms and one of our favorite acronyms starts with an o it's the oecd what does the oecd stand for
1: so the oecd is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. And actually, it's, it's got a really interesting history. It used to be the OECC, um, which was the Organization for European Economic Cooperation. That was in nineteen set up in 1948. And really, it was as a result of um, people learning the lessons of the First World War, <laughs> all the way back. And after the First World War, there was this sort of punitive uh, settlement on Germany. And, you know, the historians will write about this, that it, it sort of led to um, economic catastrophe in Germany, which people then then uh, blame in part for the rise of Hitler and the Nazi Party and then the Second World War. So once the Second World War had finished, th- there was this sort of huge investment plan for Europe called the Marshall Plan. And as part of that, th- they set up this organisation, the OECC, to uh, try and make sure that there was, you know, a healthy economic recovery in Europe, which which was actually hugely successful. Uh, And if you look at the German economy today, you you can see some of the outcome of that. Um, and, And so that sort of carried on for just over a decade. And then in 1961, it got a refresh... Uh, expanded its remit, br- brought in uh, other countries from around the world into something which is sort of, sort of a coalition of the willing of like-minded countries, um, sort of broadly democratic and following a, a market e- economic model, um, and then sort of was re- relaunched as the OECD uh, in 1961. And you see that, that clever shift from E for Europe to E for economic
0: uh, that they made so that they could sort of do the rebranding and just change one letter. That's perfect. You move from a C to a D, and suddenly a UN past the entire world. Exactly. So both you and I have hung that. We've hung out at the OECD quite a bit, um, and it's it's a it's a it's a really intellectual organization. has a lot of intellectual heft, um, sort of think tanky. Kind of character to it, but also a normative capacity that is quite significant. It has the ability to put out norms that are uh, not really treaties. They can do treaties too, but they they don't necessarily have to be treaties, and they're not binding legislation. But some of these norms have an extraordinary reach and a real impact. and And the one that I thought we would talk a little bit about today, because it has sort of it has really, I think, both made and shaped a field that we both care about, privacy a lot, is the 1980 privacy principles. Um, so the backstory here is interesting. The the, the OECD uh, saw that there was a lot of stuff happening around privacy in Europe. You saw the addition of privacy and human rights. You had, a 1968, I think, you had a commission uh, on human rights and technology that led up to, was it 73 that we had the what do you remember? So, like, so seventy-three
1: was a US uh, commission actually that, that reported oh, on it. So, right. so so there's all sorts of activity going on. You're right, and 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 we now today I think sort of um, think of p- privacy law as a very sort of European dominated field. Um, but if you go back to the seventies, th- there was sort of action all over the place. In fact, this, um the commission in in the OECD that came up with these principles in 1980 was was led by an Australian judge. Uh, a lot of the content of it is based on, as I say, U.S. thinking that, that was developed in 1973 and then went into the U.S. Privacy Act in 1974, which really discovered what the U.S. government does, but has a lot of the same kind of language in it. Um, so, yes, there's also a ferment of activity across a broad range of, of the OECD members during the 1970s.
0: Yes, and, and uh, this was sort of when when people were waking up to the to the privacy risk, they were still mainly vertical, you know, citizen state, that kind of thing, but but they they really did something quite extraordinary in trying to abstract the kinds of things you should care about if you care about privacy, in a manner that survived the shift to a more horizontal privacy situation, I think. And and it's I mean, before we sort of just jump into the principles and discuss how they're interrelated and what the emphasis and all those important things. I think it's also notable that if you look at what the working group name was or what the early name was of the principles, it was actually for the removal of barriers of data flows. Uh, That was the first part of the working name, you know, barriers and data flows and the protection of personal privacy. So early on, the privacy principles were set out to make sure that there were no barriers for data flows across the different OECD economies. The idea being that, you know, if this if we're going to have a working economy that rests on data flows, then we need to make sure that we have an understanding of when and how it's appropriate to have personal data flow across borders. So from the very beginning, the 98 privacy principles are thought of from at least a couple of the people who are going into the negotiation, especially the Americans, the US delegation, as enabling a new kind of commerce, enabling a new kind of market. And then there's sort of the the other hard-hitting um, human rights heritage that are sort of coming to the table here, and they're sitting down and they're negotiating this, and they're they're talking about you know efficiency of markets and human rights, and that's that's a conflict that we still live with, isn't it? That's right. And you're, I mean, we've talked about this before when we talked about privacy. I think particularly from a
1: European perspective. There was this real concept of privacy as as a fundamental right. Is sort of literally incorporated in that language now. But you know, if we go all the way back uh, to, to the the, the um, human rights documents that were being created post Second World War. Privacy is often in them and was it was a feature of the debates, for example, at the Council of Europe, which was set up again uh, to, to sort of try and uh, um, prevent war happening uh, and prevent human rights abuses happening. This is a very strong human rights focused organization. So, so sitting there in Europe that, that um, I think certainly, yes, the European perspective was uh, data can be abused in ways that will literally, you know, lead to, to genocide and death, which is sadly what what occurred, particularly obviously in in Germany under the Nazis, um, that people had been singled out based on personal characteristics. So, very very strong drive there, I think, t- to uh, move forward for legislation, but perhaps less burning in other countries um, because they hadn't had the same experience. But still, during the nineteen seventies, people were waking up everywhere and. and to get around the thing, they don't use this language much anymore, do they? But this ADP, automated data processing. So, yes. So, a lot of the debate okay. was as well do, do you have privacy rules just for computers? Um, and as I say, the, the language that they used at that time was just for automated data processing, or is privacy a concept or, or are data protection rules a concept that would sort of cross whether it's a paper file or a. Uh, an an automated file so there's a lot of the debate there so people are waking up in the 70s in Europe with this very very strong you know seared experience of the um second world war and fascist regimes that had uh, uh, abused data and you know later a sort of seared experience um uh, for countries in uh, central and eastern europe where they had communist regimes uh, using data in in very very abusive ways Um and then other countries sort of you know, uh, moving along perhaps at a gentler pace, but also bringing in legislation. And OECD sitting there thinking, well, part of our core mission is is to make sure that um, trade happens, that economies uh, are enmeshed with each other. That's both a sort of political and economic imperative. And, and thinking, well, rather than have everybody heading off in lots of different directions – let's create a template. Um, and it is a template that uh, OECD members can apply when they create their own domestic legislation.
0: Yeah. And it's so interesting because there's so many attempts to do this that simply just wither on the wine, They fail, right? But in this case, they managed to keep... I think a level of abstraction together with a meaningful uh, set of principles that really did influence a lot of privacy legislation and became in a sense foundational for, for what happened and I think there was there, there there's there's this it is it's almost hard to convey how emotional uh, a lot of this stuff was back then in the in negotiations. There's a beautiful paper by Michael Kirby about the, the, well, it's, the paper is called, I think, The History Achievement and Future of the 1980 OECD Guidelines on Privacy. It's published back in uh, 2010. And and in this, he sort of recounts the group's work and how everything came together and how they had a lot of uh, open sessions to sort of bring people in and hear from other people in the audience. And he recounts specifically one of these uh, episodes where they're sitting down, they're talking about this, they're talking about the efficiency of market, removing bar- barriers, etc. And, and one of the people in the audience just jumps up and says, "Let me tell you, let me tell you what we're really talking about here." In the Netherlands, they had a really efficient ID system, and that ID system had an iron bar for the picture of the uh, person that was identified by the ID card. And in France, we had simple papers that were easy to forge. Uh, when the when the Nazis took over, uh, they killed an enormous amount of people, easily identifiable, easy to localize in the Netherlands. But in France, uh, a lot of them managed to escape and run away because the ID system hadn't nailed them down. And I think this this sort of infused the discussion with the notion that you should design your privacy systems and your identity systems, I think, um, for the worst case scenario. Uh, and assume that at some point they will be abused by somebody who who will use them to to sort of do ill, to do harm. And and I think that uh, doesn't shine through if you just read the principles, but if you understand the the zeitgeist, if you will, that the principles were shaped in, I think they're they're, they're a lot easier to read, in a sense. That's right. No, I mean, just in the same
1: vein, um, and someone will correct me if I'm wrong, but I seem to remember that I think it was Portugal actually had a constitutional bar on using single national identifiers. Uh, uh, you know, it was sort of so, so embedded uh, that there was risk in data um, that I, I assume, you know, in their sort of post-dictatorship uh, constitution that they were yeah. uh, creating in the 1970s, they said, you know, we must make sure uh, that there's no single identifier that could be used in the that sort of efficient manner that you described for the Netherlands. So if, if, if this is benign, you know, efficiency of single identifiers is great. But if you're assuming worst-case scenario the efficiency of a single identifier becomes deadly and and, uh, must be sort of ruled out. And and some of those debates are still continuing today. So you're right. I think like very, very sort of emotional in terms of the the risk that um, uh, could take place. And also, again, in some sense, it's sort of novel um, that that some of the ideas were things that people just hadn't necessarily thought needed regulating before. It was sort of, you know why why are we sort of even interested in this and and actually if you just look if we sort of move on to look at some of the principles the first one which is c- collection limitation so the first principle to kind of just says you know you shouldn't really be collecting data if you haven't got a valid reason to do so and when you think about that you know in in um certainly 1950s 60s 70s uh there would have been a lot of people who would have thought well uh, uh, what's wrong you know if i've got personal data why, why do i need to you know i could just collect as much of it as i like <laughs> just like sweep it up why should there why should the law ever restrict me from collecting personal data this is an entirely harmless activity and so say the first principle you come to is one that just just tries to uh, establish a new norm that is you know you when you're collecting personal data that is a regulated activity and you shouldn't do it unless you've got good reason to do it
0: yeah, and it goes further. I mean, it's it's worthwhile really digging into these mm-hmm. principles. So the first one says there should be limits to the collection of personal data, and any such data should be obtained by lawful and fair means and where appropriate with the knowledge or consent of the data subject. So not only should there be limits, there should also be laws that set out the limits. And those laws should start from the consent of the data subject. I think this I think it sort of reflects also a view that that the, the if you think about how this projects a view of the the value of data, there's almost just a downside to the collection of data. So the collection limitation principle essentially says you may have to collect data, but if you do limit the data you collect, and make sure it's done under a thoroughly regulated framework, and make sure you've asked first. So it's it's not if you if you think about the way that we have seen this change over time, where we know that, for example, large pools of medical data can help um, address all kinds of different conditions, or you can find uh, you know really great uh, ways to improve the environment in a city by figuring out the um, the commute patterns, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, there's nothing of that in the principles. The principles. The principles don't necessarily feel or or sort of start from a position that there's an upside to data as well, but it's sort of focused on this notion that there there's absolutely most certainly is a significant and and really deep downside to the collection of data right
1: that's right it he is is not um regulating for data use, and I see this is a really interesting sort of philosophical area to explore that um you know really when we're talking about privacy and data protection. We're, we're talking about sort of imposing limitations on the ways in which data can be used, and we spend a lot of time talking about the the protections and the, the things that will will stop the data being abused. Much much less time talking about the uh, the the kind of uses to which data may be put. Um, and so it is about it's about sort of putting guardrails around use of data, and I think that's what they were. You know, certainly, the 90, these 1980 principles are very much framed in those uh, terms, and I think most of the legislation s- subsequently has been framed in those terms. It's not a comprehensive attempt to deal with data. I mean, perhaps we we talked the other day, didn't we, about the the EU's new artificial intelligence proposals, uh, and arguably they they do start to you know, whether you like them or not in detail at least they're sort of starting to talk about uh, ways in which data may be used as well as the sort of guardrails around collection and storage of data. Um, But I think when we're back in 1980, um, and I think if I remember right, at the time I think about a third of the OECD member countries at that stage had already legislated and two-thirds were sort of still to go, um, they were very much like focused on on, or the, the underlying assumption was you know, governments are going to legislate to restrict ways to put these guardrails in place. And we want to make sure that those restrictions, those guardrails are compatible with each other. Um, yeah. But it certainly wasn't, I don't think they were thinking a lot about, you know, uh, and maybe this is consistent throughout this theme of, you know, what are the positive things that people do with data? How do we enable those? It's very much a,
0: how do we prevent the harmful uses? Right, and uh, to go back to your point about the AI regulation, I think it's really interesting because the second principle is the data quality principle, um, and, and it says personal data should be relevant to the purposes for which they are to be used, to the extent necessary for those purposes, should be accurate, complete, and kept up to date. Now, here's here's what's happening in in the current AI regulation: it's that the sort of the the data quality principle and the collection limitation principle are coming to a, a conflict with each other. They're sort of coming to a crash because what you say is that, well, in order to make sure that there's good data quality, you may actually have to collect more data. And so, yes, you should limit the collection of personal data and it should still be lawful and fair and all that stuff. But you also need to look at data quality. So that's a principle that has become much, much more important in the the last decade, I think. The data quality principle, roughly that was an accuracy principle before. You know, if the state has information about it, they really have to make sure it's up to date. But when we talk about data quality today, that seems to have become... Orders of magnitude more important, wouldn't you say?
1: That's right. I think. I mean, it's sort of morphed in various different directions. The, the other um, area in which this has sort of expressed itself, I think, is through the the right to be forgotten, which uh, um, you know, at its essence, uh, w- what what the judgments were saying was that um, uh, records about individuals and and the sort of uh, definitive case was one about somebody's sort of prior criminal convictions that that was no longer relevant. Up to date information. <laughs> that that information, the person had a right to have that information forgotten. And so, I think it so sort of pretty much does stem from this notion of data quality that that um you can be storing data about people. Uh, and again, relevance is a interesting sort of arguable concept. Uh, that some people who say it's very relevant to know that the person had a prior conviction. Others will say, no, no, it was relevant for two years after the conviction, but not 20 years later. Um, But judges looked at that and they they decided this information was not relevant, should not be shown. And as you'll know from working at Google, there are various search results about individuals that can't be shown because the judgment is that that is not quality data. um, And it breaches this principle. So it's still sort of Forty odd years on, uh, this is quite an important, or perhaps a m- more important principle. Even than I think we recognised at the time when when this was produced in 1980.
0: I think it's interesting because part of it is that the quality of the data in, in the Costeja case, for example, was good. I mean, it was legally, you know, quality was was. It, it reflected exactly what had happened, but what the court said was that, yes, but you know it's okay to make a decision to publish it in the first case, and the, the magazine or the newspaper publishing it were not at fault. But what happens over time is that there there is a quality concern, if you will, related not just to time, but also to reach. So the data, in some sense... And it sort of becomes very strange and very hard to understand because what you're saying then is that the quality of the data needs to be much, 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 uh, not higher, but it needs, to be, it needs to be relevant across a much larger geography for you to be able to actually make it accessible across that larger geography. And, and that's the thing with the, the right to be forgotten, to sort of go down a, um, a parallel track for a while that, that I have always found fascinating, this idea that it's lawfully published in the first place, but making it available to a lot of people through search uh, at a later point in time and to a wider audience is what's problematic. Yeah, and, yeah. and I think that's—I think that actually reflects a really interesting view of information as local and as sort of as the breach here is making local information global. And making, you know, uh, information of the past, information of the present. So it's it's sort of this this question of, I mean, the right to be forgotten is almost like a, a question of how do you deal with time and space yes. <laughs> if you're an information service? I mean, we're getting far into metaphysics now, but but that's sort of what you're being asked to do. You're being asked to ask yourself, is this information something that you can legally distribute at this point in time to this space? to yep. this in, you know with this reach yep. which is which is uh, an amazing question because if you invert it you sort of see that well you know that means that that forgetfulness in this case is something that uh, that that is related to where it's forgotten uh, or you know who cannot access this because nobody has made the argument that the original publication decision should be reversed nor that the articles availability in their archive should be addressed so the archive of that newspaper or magazine can still surface this article in the locality without it actually being subject to the right to be forgotten in the same way or under the same conditions which is which is confusing um, but but also i think reflects how hard it is to do privacy, how hard it is to sort of really, really find those balances, which is exactly what they're trying to do in the principles. Um, and I think, I, I mean, my.
1: I think that's, oh, that's... Sorry, I'm just going on. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I knew um, it would be fun to take you off on that one. So, so I think it is this notion... You're right. It's, it's partly this notion of up-to-dateness, which is there. So so when is something no longer up-to-date? And I think you're right, there's another element, which is almost a sort of fairness element. Um, so when... Yeah, because the, the critical decision was when I search for somebody by their name, you know, what is the content that gets returned in the search engine results... And, and I think the judgment essentially sort of said it is unfair if this old information is returned then. Uh, but it would be fair if somebody actively went and sought out the original publication and and found the information there, which is a really sort of, yeah. You know, well, we've argued out sort of interesting concept. But I think in that case, I say it's this, um, it's certainly the time I, I think is relevant. I think if that, you know, the judgment had happened six months previously, uh, to the search taking place, I'm pretty confident that the courts might have come to a different view and said it is fair for that information to be returned. Um, but if the judgment was old, it's somehow unfair. Uh, so it's fairness and time I <laughs> think they sort of brought in uh, as sort of fascinating concepts into making those
0: decisions. You could make an argument from the next principle, though. Uh, the yeah. next principle in line is purpose specification principle. And it says the purpose for, purposes for which personal data are collected should be specified, not laid later than at the time of data collection and the subsequent use limited to the fulfillment of those purposes or such others as are not incompatible with those purposes and as are specified on each occasion of change of purpose. Now, you could make the argument that the purpose of publishing a notice on bankruptcy in a newspaper is different than the purpose of making that information universally available and accessible, to sort of quote the Google mission. Yes. So you could say what's really at stake here is sort of a purpose clash you have the purpose of the newspaper, which is distinct from the purpose of the search engine, and that the data that can be reasonably published and can be reasonably uh, distributed according to, to the purpose of the newspaper cannot be transferred automatically to the social media site or the search engine. So you could make an argument from the purpose specific, which makes these so interesting, right? Because they yeah. can be applied to every single case and you can tweak and work. And, and there's, there's something about this that sort of makes it into metaphysical Legos.
1: Yeah, I think we might have just destroyed uh, the ability of search engines to index anything that involves personal data in that if we play in that uh, that way. I mean, which, which you say, isn't interesting I like search and, uh, engines. No, exactly. Program. But it's a it's a <laughs> uh, it's a sort of fascinating um, you know extension again if you take some of these principles which are at one level and and this is, uh, you're right, it's a very interesting sort of um, f- framing that at one level they are what you might call common sense principles and that's always dangerous in in anything political to say well, it's just common <laughs> sense sort of, but there is an element you read them and you kind of go it, it makes perfect sense to say you know you should tell people what you're going to do with their data. And then that's what you should do with it and not other things. Um, but then when you apply these much more complex real world scenarios, like I've, I've told you that, you know, I'm going to collect some data in order to um, post it up on a website, uh, but you haven't specified and the website may then get indexed by a search engine and da, 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 and off we go. And there's going to be a whole sort of chain of things that take place, you know, Um is that in breach of the principle to allow that to happen? Or on on social media, the other example, and you've destroyed Google's model, so I'll destroy Facebook's model now just to keep it forever. But, but, um, you know, if I take a photo of somebody and I post it up on social media... It, it may have been clear that the purpose, you know, was that was did was I explicit with the person that the purpose of me taking the photo or collecting their data in the photo was to distribute it more widely. Uh, uh, to what extent do they decide how widely that photo, which is my photo on my phone but includes their face, their personal data, you know, is distributed? Uh, how much control do they have over that? Um, so again, if you take that, it's a very simple language like purpose limitation you still need to interpret it and you need to say, are we interpreting it in a way where we are intending to be as restrictive pos- as possible? Uh, and if we are, then we're going to say the default must be that you know search engines and, uh, are not able to index your website, otherwise you've sort of crossed the line, and that photos must be restricted only to you know, very small audiences and not uh, allow friends of friends or wider audiences to access them. So that would be one interpretation, a very sort of restrictive one. The other is to say, look, if, you know, the purpose is, if you've reasonably explained it, people have a reasonable enough sense. If it's on a website, it's going to get indexed. If it's a photo posted to social media, you can't completely control who it goes to, then that's sufficient. You've met the purpose limitation. But you can argue both of those and every point in between.
0: Yes, and that's why I think there there are exceptions to the data protection rules when they're actually put into legislation. You have to tackle all of these really difficult trade offs, and that's that's the point at which you get exception catalogues and you get all kinds of things that sort of that allow you to to work with the with the interpretation. But but the purpose specification principle is 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 truly fascinating because because it sort of asks again a deep metaphysical question: what is a purpose? And this has real world implications. There's the Swedish case, for example, where a lot of general genetic data was collected for the purpose of medical research. Now, that's a purpose, medical research. But, said the court, it's not specific enough. So there are two things that work here, right? One is purpose, the other is specification. So if I say I'm collecting your data because I'm really curious to know what I can do with it, I gave you a purpose, right? I, I want to know what I can do with your data. But no data protection authority in the world would say that that's a specific enough purpose for the kind of collection I do. But that's what you're tempted to do because the rule says very clearly that you have to specify at the time of data collection what your purpose is. So that means that you get these privacy policies that that have enormous long lists of, here are the different things I'd like to do with your data, because you have to come up with it when you collect it, or you cannot use it for those other purposes later. So it's sort of putting this incentive in the hands of the data collector to go broad, as broad as possible when they collect, but still not broad Enough to not actually be specified. So it's a horrible set of trade-offs. Yeah. you have. To, I mean, this is this is stuff that would it would certainly vex a Leibniz or a Newton or a Descartes, yeah. right? What So what's a what's a broad enough purpose to make sure I can actually do what I need to do with this stuff? And is that still specified? And if it's not specified, what automatically happens then is that you can't consent to it.
1: It's so right. that's
0: another mechanic that's interesting. The purpose specification has to be crisp, really crisp. Otherwise. It's not consent because you cannot consent to something that's ill-defined, and suddenly you—you you're, sort of, you're deep into the philosophy of mind here. It's like, can I consent to things that are ill-defined? Yes. <laughs> and it's—it's. It's, I think it's fascinating, and I—I think this is what, this is what made them so useful in a sense that they're so malleable, they're—they're they're so open, but still they sort of play off of each other. The value of the OECD privacy principles is not every single privacy principle or the enumeration of them. It's that they have laid out the dimensions of tensions in the privacy space in a way that really forces you to sort of walk through the cases and and sort of to, to your point, you're 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 always good with your analogies, right? This is where you have to start telling stories about medical research or other things and understand how that works.
1: Yeah, I think, I think you're right. You've, it, the The principle isn't called the principle of purpose generalisation, which may which is is a response or or specific generalisation, which I think is is where privacy policies do end up. So that the the generalisation or the response tends to be um, exactly as you say that in a privacy policy, the temptation is for an organisation to say we are collecting your data for. Medical research and related purposes. <laughs> you know, because you, yeah, yeah. you want to, you got to put it all in, and then you get told you can't do that. And so then you say, "And yes, it's for medical research, which may encompass." And then you list fifty different things. uh So it's a sort of a, a general specific. Is that right? A a a, gen, a a something which permits you to use the data more generally, but based on the list of specificities. And none of these are really very satisfactory um, solutions. Uh, but I think you're right, it was reflecting very much live debates that legislators were going through at that time. So as they were sort of crafting these early instruments towards the end of the 1970s, and again, that OECD working group is f- full of people who are who are sort of grappling with these issues day to day. And you're right, they did, I think, settle on things which we're still grappling with today, and and there will be... I'm very confident. In fact, I think there are cases going up to the, for example, the European Court of Justice under the General Data Protection Regulation, which is the sort of latest incarnation of European uh, uh, regulation, which reflects these principles precisely to look at these questions of how general and how specific can you be. You know, what does what does or how should we interpret purpose specification through the instrument of the GDPR? Um, and that will that will look at you know Google's privacy policy and what it asks people to consent to as a test case and come
0: to a view on that. Yeah, and then look at you know are those purposes specific enough, uh, or yeah. you know are the, And then of course you you can't understand the purpose specification principle if you don't understand the next one, which is the use yeah. limitation principle. They're sort of they're sort of one and the same. And I always wondered, and this is this is me being stupid. I said. Posed, I always wonder why they broke them up into to two different kinds of principles. I think it's probably because the use limitation principle is, is very much about, it sort of starts out saying this, personal data should not be disclosed, made available, or otherwise used for purposes other than those specified in accordance with paragraph nine, except with the consent of the data subject or by the authority of law. So the original use limitation principle actually allowed for consent to void the purpose specification principle but that is not what you find in any of the privacy legislation nor in the actual practice of the, of the DPAs so the oecd privacy principles reflect a highly individualistic the um, conception of privacy, where the individual reigns supreme and can sort of consent to things that are not specific enough or where purpose has not been specified. But that slowly then crept away, especially in European um, privacy legislation. And I think one reason for that is that European privacy legislation, to a large degree, was a mix of private and public law. It had sort of both of those in it. And the public law element much like a public health law, right, was was sort of set out to protect the individual from him or herself. So that part of the use limitation principle, the, the sort of the, the real value and power of consent was diminished over the ages and, and became, I think, if, if you look at one of the principles that I think has been weakened the most, I would say that that, that notion that consent uh, has, uh, really carries a lot of power has slowly been chipped away at. And there's been more and more of the public law intuition that we need to save people from themselves because they make really horrible decisions. And so we talk about informed consent and we talk about articulate, expressed, documented consent in different ways. It feels to me as if as if that sort of sub-bullet within the use limitation principle, where the consent of the data subject actually really can uh, ameliorate a lot of other uh, flaws in, in the data collection, Is almost gone today. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think, again, that reflects the fact that the history
1: of these principles is that they do very much depend on the fair information practice principles, which is another bit of jargon, but that is those are sort of ideas that were developed in the United States. Again, go back to the 1970s, and there's a lot of uh, the privacy law action is happening in the United States. A lot of the thinking is happening there. And so I think you do see that more strongly in the OECD principles. And again, we repeat a theme we come back to, I, and I think it's fair to say, as observers, that that um, United States law tends much more to to, to be towards uh, the individual has a right to make mistakes, <laughs> and individual decision making, you know, sort of overrides other considerations. European law, I think in general, and again, legal scholars may jump in here, but I think it, it tends to have a little bit more of the paternalism, uh, to it. This the sort of yeah. notion of we must, um, protect people from their own foolishness. <laughs> and so I do think uh, that in the OECD principles, we're seeing something which has got a much stronger US tradition within it, um, than, than current incarnations of privacy law in, Euro- law in Europe, which now tends to be, the law that most people look at. And again, the, the, these principles, these fair information uh, uh, practice principles sort of went into various parts of US law. Um, it, it, when it came to government activity, they're there in the law. When it comes to private sector activity, they're more guidelines rather than legally b- binding requirements. Um, but they do, I think, have this stronger notion that, uh, y- yes, you know, th- these are all the things that a company should do. Um, but ultimately, if an individual ch- chooses to use a service, or chooses to provide data in a particular way, or is comfortable with their data being used in a particular way, however ill-advised the state may think that is, that they're perfectly entitled to do that, and, and a company shouldn't be penalized if somebody, uh, uh, if if for whatever reason, they're able to, as long as it's reasonably fair, <laughs> persuade someone to sign up for something which, you know the state may think is ill advised. I think in Europe we would be much more inclined to say we we must not allow a company uh, to offer something ill advised. The law should restrict them from even you know putting that on the table um, if it's inappropriate. And part of that will come back to this again European notion that uh, fundamental rights and privacy embedded as this fundamental right, and therefore to allow companies to do things that would contradict that fundamental right, even where they have the consent of the individuals uh, would not sit easily with that European model.
0: I think I think, I think that's right. I, I think that one sort of interesting uh, subreading of that is to say, look, one of the, if you sort of jump a couple of principles down, you jump to this individual participation principle. That's a really interesting uh, thing to think about. What what does it say? It says an individual should have the right to obtain from the data controller otherwise confirmation of whether or not the data controller has data relating to him. And then there's a number number of other things that the individual has the right to do. And, and one way of reading is to say, well, this is this is what a human right is. It's something you exercise with your agency as an individual. So you could say that there's actually a. Of the European human rights debate in this as well, where, where sort of the consent of the individual reigns supreme and the individual participation principle, the notion that you as an individual reach out to and ask your data controller, What do you have on me? And you can ask, You know, you should correct this because it's wrong, or well, you should give me reasons for why you have uh, collected this, etc. So there is. This, this, there's sort of the American sense of the individual making mistakes, which I think is a huge part of this. And I sort of also, but it, it sort of nicely melts with a more agency-oriented human rights perspective, where you as an individual exercise your human rights vis-a-vis other actors. And that's sort of also something that's enabled and would hold consent as supreme and sort of allow you as an individual to make uh, bad decisions, but also to consent to things that you think might be reasonable, right? Medical research, sure, use my genetic data for it. I do not need you to specify the number or kinds of illnesses that you're researching, because I do believe that this is a choice I can make as an individual. And and, and to me uh, there is there is uh, there is about the trend since the 1980s has has been to to sort of remove the individual a lot from the from the sort of the privacy discussion and have it be essentially a discussion between institutions and companies and legislators the individual is receding from the privacy scene in a sense if you if you see what i mean
1: yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because I mean, part of the reason for us doing the, uh, these classic texts in our uh, podcast series is is to see how concepts and language have changed over time. And I found this one really interesting. I hadn't looked at the principles for a while until we're sort of getting ready for for. Talking about them and that language, individual participation, is I, I th- are quite attractive and powerful. And the, again, the modern uh, incarnation of this in, in European law talks about a subject access request. And a subject <laughs> access request that feels much more passive to me. I'm a subject. Let's start with that, and I'm making a request. So, yeah, I'm the passive. Uh, again, it's a it's an important part of the law. So, it's not doing it down, but just in the words, subject access request sounds like the sort of passive victim of the data controllers, um, who, who uh, you know is being given the right to 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 request access. Individual participation sounds much more a co-creation, if you like, of whatever's happening. I am, I am, I have a right as an individual to participate in, you know, the processing or the the, the decisions about the data uh, that is relevant to me. It's not, to, you know, in terms of the law, um, it's not to sort of necessarily say there's a huge distinction there, but but language sort of matters in terms of. Uh, signaling uh, what you're intending here, and I think in 1980, the 1980 version. I just as, a, as I revisit, I find that notion attractive. That there should be a, you know, if you are writing a law today, that if you frame a lot of these rights, and the rights may end up looking very similar, you know, the right to access your data, have it corrected, etc. But but just framing it as the section on individual participation just feels attractive in a lot of ways compared with this sort of subject uh type language that we tend to use.
0: Yeah, an, an individual should have the right to obtain yeah. from a data controller, to have communicated to him, to be given reasons if a request is done under subparagraph denied, or you know, and to challenge data relating to him, and if the challenge is successful, to have the data erased, rectified, completed, or amended. The individual is in the driver's seat here, and I remember this as a kid because I was a, I was a freaky kid, you know, back <laughs> when I was really uh, small. I had my parents sign for me a note that I sent to the central data collector in Sweden that had sort of all of the central records, and I asked for printout of all of those records this was I can I cannot have been more than 12 or 13 years I was obviously a very very annoying child but so my parents took um, mercy on me and signed this thing and sent it and I still remember to this day that you know back came what was certainly like a 10 centimeter bunch of papers printed out on line printer paper where they had stuff about me and about my parents and about all kinds of different things they knew that i was subscribing to to donald duck for example (laughs) and it was all kinds of weirdness that they had in this uh, this sort of register but but i felt very proud that i had stood up to this um, enormous data collecting entity and had asked them to give me the data because i felt as if i was an agent and sort of an I exercise agency in my individual rights and and I knew now what they knew about me and, and that was sort of all good that's that's the kind of thing i think was embodied in a lot of the language in individual participation but has sort of been i mean i' been thinking i think I mean, you, you could make a really good argument here if you're if you're a If you want to argue for why the individual has receded from the scene, the argument would start from the notion of asymmetry. This we hear a lot, Mm. you know, the asymmetry between the parties. There is no way that the individual can stand up to the large companies or the states that are collecting data about them. There's a huge asymmetry of information, a symmetry of power, a symmetry of time. And so that asymmetry is slowly crowding out the individual in a sense. And I think there's, there's a point to this for sure. And I think you could make that argument and you could sort of walk through it and you could say this asymmetry is the reason. But it's still really interesting to see how the individual is being uh, almost marginalised in in the privacy debate. To
1: yeah, a sense. I mean, part of it is is this language, this sort of data subject language, which it's just touched on in in the sort of beginning part of the principles. But I think it's is not it's not sort of common throughout. It's not common language at the time. It's become much more consistent. So we have this notion of the data controller makes the decisions about the data. The data subject is the person whose data is being processed. Um, uh, uh, but that's because they like become much more common uh, parlance and now runs through certainly European legislation. This, this concept of the data subject, which it, which does carry connotations with it. But, but your story you, you've described of, um, asking for the data from the Swedish authorities, you were the original Max Schrems. And, and, for, <laughs> for, for, listeners who don't know, um, Max Schrems is an, uh, an Austrian. He was a law student at the time and he requested his data from Facebook and got back a big file of data um, in very similar to the way you described it and then use that to, to run a whole series of campaigns. Online
0: printer paper. You really Uh, did that?
1: uh, (laughs) I think you got it as a CD, but he printed it out because it made for much better visual effect to show, to show people that how much data there was. (laughs) And, you know, um, but but it's really, it's just the way you, you sort of talk about that. You could describe that in two ways. You can say, you, you can frame this as you know, poor uh, European citizen, victim of you know data subjects uh, persecuted or by this data controller, or you can frame it the other way and go, wow, this is incredibly empowering because of legislation based on these principles. And 15 years after the OECD principles, Europe adopted its um, original uh, data protection uh, directive uh, in 1995. Uh, because of that. <laughs> An and individual in Europe uh, does have these rights, ha- is able to do their individual participation, can challenge Facebook, um, which is not you know, even at this stage a sort of uh, uh, necessarily an entity in their country. Max is, was in Austria. The, they weren't present in Austria. Um, but through various legal mechanisms, they can challenge this company. And, and he has been very successful in a number of court cases, uh, sort of really quite um, fundamentally shifting what people can do, including, as we've debated elsewhere, you know, some big question marks that now sit over transatlantic data flows between pretty much <laughs> any large corporation and, and entities that they have in the United States. So, you know, I think that's a prime example of somebody not being a subject, <laughs> but a participant. Right. And uh, and again, it's, it's really it's the way you look at it. I, I've I've heard the framing to say, "Oh my God, this is sort of so terrible. The law is not working," because you know Max rent had to take this court case. I turn it around the other way, and go, "My God, the law is working," <laughs> when you know a twenty-something law student using their rights quite. Properly within the European Union can take these cases and and make massive waves. Um, and if we go back to sort of why these principles came in the first place, prior to these principles coming in, or or laws based on these principles, there was nothing you could do. You were a data subject then because <laughs> there was no law. People would collect your data and do what the hell they like with it. Fast forward, and yes, it's not perfect, and and maybe companies shouldn't be doing all the things they're doing. But my God, you've got some pretty robust rights (laughs) uh, under the law uh, that you can exercise at pretty low cost in order to be able to try and assert what you want as an individual participant. This may be one of the principles that has worked most effectively um, if you take that interpretation of it.
0: Yeah, no, I think, I mean, Shram certainly strikes me as an individual participant and quite an effective one rather than, than somebody who's just subject to data collection. I, I really agree with that. I think that's it's a really, it's a it's a, it's a great point. Now, moving on, uh, I want to sort of, so if that has receded, if, if sort of we have seen more emphasis on data quality, we've seen less on the individual participation and much less on consent, who's sort of slowly been limited in different ways and qualified at so consent, individual participation is receding, data quality is going. One thing that has really, really, really uh, gone forward and become much more important is principle 12, yeah. the openness principle, right? There should be a general policy of openness about developments, practices, and policies with respect to personal data. Means should be readily available for establishing the existence and nature of personal data and the main purposes of their use, as well as the identity and usual residence of the data controller. Transparency is the key word of the day. This is, this is one of the principles that has not just survived, but I think thrived in in the in the forty plus years um, uh, after the principles were formulated, right?
1: It, it has, but I think this is one area where critics would, I think, argue that it, it's still wanting. And actually, I think this openness principle ties with the last principle, which is the one of accountability. <laughs>
0: And so I which think- is the one they added, by the way? The OECD, it- where Michael Kirby says that the accountability principle was was their unique contribution. So the notion of accountability, uh, which translates ultimately into the notion of fines, if if yes. <laughs> one sort of traces it, was the OECD's unique intervention or innovation in in uh, in the principle land. Sorry, go ahead.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and actually to that point, though, if you look at you know the sort of distinction today that in in the United States these principles are there as fair information practice principles, but they're they're um, sort of advisory from the Federal Trade Commission. And there isn't the same, uh, if you're arguably sort of accountability in the sense of, you know, you can be fined by a data protection agency if you breach them. But the European version, absolutely, that's the direction they've gone in. But I think there is still a, a, a perhaps more of a focus on that. Um, the accountability mechanisms have been strengthened, but I think a lot of, you know, um, feeling that uh openness or companies are insufficiently open about what they're doing and it is still quite hard to hold them accountable for that and again you know we've we've talked about it before the the artificial intelligence proposals that are coming forward and this this whole sort of notion of i don't know what's happening inside the algorithms we've got to get more transparency there so so the baseline transparency has been achieved which is you know, pretty much every organization in the world now that's collecting data will have some kind of public privacy policy. And in the privacy policy, they will state where they're processing the data, et cetera, et cetera. Um, where people have sort of moved on is to say, well, that's not sufficient. Uh, you know, I, I really need to understand in quite a lot of detail exactly what it is you're doing with the data, why you're doing it, how you're doing it. Um, and so I need to really get under the hood and there I think there is a, a, a view that they want to use the accountability mechanisms, regulators, uh, and this is probably going to happen in next iterations of European legislation at least, they're going to use those accountability mechanisms t- to uh, force uh, another level of openness beyond that sort of baseline which is set out in the principle. Um, it's almost like that openness is yeah, it's sort of uh, too easy, <laughs> not sufficient. Um, and maybe that reflects the fact that when these principles were drawn up, people were not thinking uh, about very complex and sophisticated use of the data. It would have been enough to say, you know, I am coca-cola and i'm collecting your uh, information in order to do direct mail to you and i store that data in the united states you know and you would have met that openness principle that would have been fine it, it, you know fast forward to today and people are interested in yes how did a particular platform algorithmically figure out that a particular individual based on their personal data likes coca-cola um and that's a whole other sort of world of openness from the from that baseline
0: Yes. But I also think it's interesting that the openness principle can be sort of co-opted by by other actors than the state. So one of the things that sort of fall under the openness principle is this practice of publishing transparency reports that I think has been uh, also a really important addition to the overall understanding of how personal data is used. You know, how, how is your government requesting information about users on the internet? How many times are they requesting that information be disclosed about users? And, and, and I think this this idea that transparency can be provided by my corporations without there being actual legislation, because there's no legislation that demands a transparency report, I think is also somewhat underestimated. One of the things that the OECD privacy principles sort of, I think, um, are open to is the participation of multiple stakeholders across the market, whereas a lot of this has been seen as stuff that you extract from corporations rather than stuff you create together. And the the openness principle is also interesting because I think there is a, if you think about sort of the the overall concept of transparency, uh, there, there is no clear answer to how you become transparent in an efficient way. Because I can tell you everything that's happening with a piece of personal data that's collected about you, but I, I would bet that it will take five minutes, perhaps, for you to be bored out of your mind, if I do that. <laughs> and, you know, the, the, the whole idea of transparency relates to the idea of attention in the sense that you have to pay attention to the transparency for the transparency to work. And this is the same thing with the openness, principle and and that's why i think while it's becoming much much more important it's one of the hardest principles to get across because you assume that people want to pay attention to what happens with their personal data and Same. that is true in some cases and for some people for a max frame that's certainly true but it's not true for a lot of other people and so uh, how do you square that yeah, I, I,
1: that's a really difficult area because it, it's, this, it's the it's the old sort of data information <laughs> dilemma that the, you know information is useful and data not necessarily and and so you get that often here in Spain. So if I, as you describe, if I publish data about everything that I do with uh, your personal data, uh, that may not provide you with the information you need which is to really understand what's going on partly because it may just be too much and that doesn't remind me that um dealing with of another area but a relevant one when when uh, in the uk they started publishing information about the um expense claims made by individual politicians you know the the, the time when it was most uh, high risk was when a small amount of Uh, pieces of information were being released selectively. Once you start releasing everything all of the time, it starts to become really uninteresting because there's just this sea of data. And within that, people can't really sort of extract uh, highlights. So one of the strategies is, you know, publish everything and then uh, you'll actually get a lot less attention. And you mentioned the transparency reports. I was at uh, Facebook at the time when we were deciding whether or not to, uh, you you know, put out uh, transparency reports about government requests for data. And And there were some voices, sort of very hesitant to do that because they they were concerned that you know people would zero in on individual areas and they'd be asking questions which we we would have answers to, but it would be very difficult. You know how do how do you avoid getting into tense situations when? You know, people are really zeroing in on particular requests in a particular country, and you may say things that are, you know upset people. Whatever, in the end, if you publish a full transparency report with a list of all of the requests from all of the countries, <laughs> there's remarkably little interest from anyone. <laughs> so, so, in other words, the more you publish, the less interesting it is. Um, and I've experienced that in a number of different areas. Uh, so, yes, <laughs> um, we may make assumptions that openness is uh, going to be sufficient and then, and then we may get frustrated when it happens and and uh, it, it doesn't produce the reaction that people expected and again, just another example that um, there's actually really some quite good information out there about um how the Facebook newsfeed algorithm works it explains in quite sort of you know detail uh, exactly the factors that go in and how they're weighted not not down to the level of like every single item of the thousands of items, but it gives you a pretty good idea and I think they even have a button there where you can click and see it but you know that's not that's sort of not really interesting. So somebody goes, I think there's something mysterious happening in the algorithm. I want to I want to find the three data points that tell me about the mysterious thing. I don't want you know this sort of huge mass of data that that doesn't help me identify the problem that I think is there. Um, so yeah, uh, it's a real challenge. How do you get? What's the point of the openness? Is the openness that there should be a mass of data out there? in case you want to check on things, or is the openness intended to reveal the bad things that you assume are happening, which is why you demanded the openness in the first
0: place? And those are very different models for it. I agree. I think that the original openness principle actually goes back to what you said in the beginning, that that up until the 1970s, people were like, well, of course, I'll collect personal data. That doesn't matter. I don't need to tell anyone. The openness principle has this. It's, it says means should be readily available of establishing the existence and nature of personal data. Just the fact that somebody had personal data was not necessarily open to people. So we have now morphed this principle into transparency, which is this idea that if I should have complete understanding of everything that happens in a system. And that's when I can acquiesce to my data being in some way collected by it. That's sort of when it's really possible to consent to data collection, which of course assumes that people have an infinite amount of time and (laughs) that they're willing to use it for this. And I think you at some point i think referred me to a study that calculated the amount of time you would have yes. to spend on reading <laughs> privacy policies if you wanted to read them properly before you agreed to them and it made it into to yeah, at least work months a months of work for people to do a year if they wanted to do it, to sort of really make sure that they read through privacy policy we've ended up in this place where there is sort of an there is an, an enormous demand for openness and not really a supply of attention and I'm I'm sort of worrying that we're teaching people the wrong thing with the tension between the two, um, that that sort of the the, the transparency becomes becomes a, a, um, a, a symbolic thing that doesn't really change the change the game perhaps. And I'm, right. I'm I'm not sure how that works. Oh, I mean, I think the most the most
1: promising areas that are happening in regulation at the moment, uh, um, for me at least, are, are those which sort of tend towards regulators having special access and or sort of audit capabilities because those are people with attention <laughs> i mean they're, right. they're, they're literally paid to, to to be paying attention and resources and i think that that actually could be a lot lot more interesting and again it sounds it sort of sounds exclusive i'm saying that you know the access should be for regulators run the general public but I think what i'm suggesting is that they're not mutually exclusive there should be access lots of data and information out there for the general public. The general public should know how newsfeed algorithms work, but it's not realistic to to expect uh, people to really dig in um uh, That's where the regulators will kick in, and the regulators will focus on particular areas, and they will do that hard work, <laughs> and then they will tell the public what they found, uh, whether there is anything in there or not. Uh, and you arguably it'd be similar. Yes, for the privacy policies, let's not let's not get too stressed about the idea that it's impossible to read all the privacy policies as long as there is a regulator. That that is <laughs> has got the capability to go and look at privacy policies, perhaps on a selective basis, where they think something is high risk. Not necessarily all of them, all of the time. Um, much much more realistic for the regulator to be, you know, looking at the world of privacy policies than expecting any individual uh, to be doing that. Am I am I on the? paternalistic rather than the
0: individual participation side here, but uh, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And the openness principle morphing into a transparency principle and then ending up being an audit principle is, is not an unlikely trajectory, is it? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's right. So so we're, we're nearing the end of the podcast. Um, I'll ask you, a, a sort of put it on the spot. If you could edit just one of the principles, which one would you pick? And what is the sort of if you look at all of them, the collection limitation principle, data quality principle, purpose specification, use limitation, security safeguards we didn't talk about mm-hmm. because I think that's pretty standard. Then openness, individual participation, and accountability principle. Which which one would you because these were revised in 2013 and we have talked about the original ones because we are the original OECD gangsters. Yes. Um, <laughs> so which one would you, which one would you sort of feel, hmm? That's one I'd like to dig into a little bit.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would have not surprised from our discussion today. I'm I'm really interested in this individual participation one, and how that relates to all the others. Because I do I do think can we talked about this in some of the other conversations around privacy law today. For example, the situation we might arrive at where an individual chooses to use a service which is processing in data data in ways which are deemed to be unsafe. And we're going to hit this tension between, you know, does the state get to decide whether or not you can use that service or does the individual get to decide? Um, and that's not just, you know, there's, there's part of this is this sort of notion of the, the U.S. tech giants. Yes. But there's also, you know, lots of companies, for example, based in places like China, where I don't think anyone would suggest that the law is in any way. Compatible necessarily with sort of modern data protection practice, um, but if an individual chooses to use those uh, services, that's so openly. Like what are the conditions under which the individual gets to make that decision versus the state uh, banning or limiting use of services on their behalf? I, I find that fascinating and individual participation. That's sort of extending that notion, but um, the relationship between the individual and the service, assuming they've got the information they need is really fascinating for me.
0: And that's a that's a really good answer. And I think we end on that uh, as always. If you have comments, ideas, or questions, uh, or if there are any other um, more than forty-year-old uh, policy documents that you would like us to pour over, don't hesitate. Just reach out and tell us. We would love to hear all of your comments. And you can find this podcast at Richard's website, which is www.regulate.tech. Thank you so much for listening.